everyone, this is Ansel Hers. I'm the Stir the Pod producer. This week's podcast features Congresswoman Jayapal in conversation with high school students from the Seattle area and surrounding areas. This is a recording from a town hall uh, youth speak out that they recently did ahead of the March 24th March for Our Lives, which is a nationwide day of action taking on gun violence in the aftermath of the Parkland shooting. Thank you, everybody, and hello. How are you, Seattle? I don't know. That's not quite good enough for the 7th Congressional District. How are you, Seattle? it up. I mean, really give it up for the student organizers of the Seattle March for Our Lives. And I just want you to feel that love because it is so real. And Rhiannon and Amelia, thank you so much for reaching out to me to do this. Um, To all the students that are here on stage, as well as the ones that are in the audience. I'm a lifelong organizer after 9-11. I helped start One America, which is now the largest immigrant advocacy organization in the state, at a time when <laughs> at a time when there were very few people with us standing up for Muslims or for Dreamers or for comprehensive immigration reform. And at that moment there was this hyper-partisanship and hyper-patriotism, excuse me, and the country was lurching towards war at the time. And we saw the beginnings of some of the worst immigrant blaming and bashing. And I and others stood up and actually helped to build a movement that has worked over the last 15 years to get us to where we are. And it's not to say that it's ended. I mean, we know how difficult the task is. And we know that in order to become as powerful as we did, we had to build coalitions with labor unions, with faith, with immigrants, groups of all Uh, backgrounds and ethnicities and build a movement to take on xenophobia and racism and hatred, something that our country has had to struggle with and fight with for so long and will continue to. But 14 years later, I ran for elected office because I became convinced that the kind of change that we want is going to require that more organizers step up, I hope you all are thinking about it, step up and actually run for office and not cede political office as an organizing ground. And so, as a lifelong organizer, here's what I know to be true. That often, real strength emerges in the times of greatest crisis. That is when you see the power of people's hearts coming forward, and this crisis of gun violence that's taking away lives every day has finally brought forward a different kind of strength. A strength powered by kids who are speaking in voices true and clear and forcing people to make a choice about which side of history and which side of justice they want to stand on. And since the Sandy Hook massacre in 2012, 7,000 children have lost their lives as a result of gun violence. 7,000 children senselessly robbed of birthdays, futures, and the right to grow up. And it's not just kids. Across the country, from mass shootings to gun violence in communities, people are losing their lives because our society, collectively, has refused to act. In 2016, according to Every Town for Gun Safety, there were over 37,000 gun homicides and suicides. 37,000. And yes, it's also absolutely true 
that black folks are far more likely to face gun violence and die of gun violence than white folks. So these statistics are real. Today, our country has almost as many guns as we have people. 256 million guns in this country. And that's a low estimate. Some estimates go all the way up to 305 million guns in this country. Our people are dying. And kids are going to school and wondering if they're gonna cower in a corner instead of learning their lessons. We're turning schools into drill centers for mass shootings while politicians hide behind mental illness and the Second Amendment, which I just have to tell you, said nothing about the right to carry an AR-15 or have high-capacity magazines that could fire hundreds of bullets at a time to massacre people. And as one of the Parkland students said so beautifully at the rally at the Capitol, which I joined the walkout at the Capitol and joined the march with the students, um, he said this as he was speaking, he said, your right to carry a gun does not outweigh our right to And I'm not to saying it's easy. Right before this, um, it was probably the highlight of my week, that meeting we just had with, I don't know, was it about 30 um, of our leaders from all of these schools? We had an organizing and strategy meeting um, because it's not easy. And I'm an organizer myself, I always have been, and I know that winning on these critical, consequential issues is incredibly difficult because the forces that are allied against us are huge, right? We all understand that. The forces of political corruption, of money in politics, of a gun lobby, and politicians who are morally bankrupt on this issue. So Emma Gonzalez, one of the student survivors of the Parkland shooting, here are her words. Politicians who sit in their gilded House and Senate seats funded by the NRA telling us that nothing could have ever been done to prevent this, we call BS. They say that tougher gun laws do not decrease gun violence, we call BS. They say a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun, we call BS. They say guns are just tools like knives and are dangerous as cars, we call BS. They say that no laws could have been able to prevent the hundreds of senseless tragedies that have occurred, we call BS. So to Emma and to all the other Parkland students who are so eloquent and vocal, I have to say I've been so inspired by this are recognizing and speaking up about a lot of things, including the fact that while it is their courage and action that has lifted the issue into the forefront of every single American's minds, there were black and brown kids before who were also fighting for gun control. And so let me end with this and let's get to the discussion. The rise in gun violence and the rise of the NRA lobby are part of a growing culture that has forgotten that our primary responsibility is actually to take care of each other. We should think about how we turn the push to violence in our society back through nonviolent resistance, through compassion, through calling people in as well as calling people out, through holding each person who has lost someone to gun violence through their tears while also helping them to be part of the growing movement for justice through being smart about our organizing and engaging not only in marches, which are so critically important, but also in collective action that it is hard to hide from, like nonviolent civil disobedience, 
like economic boycotts, which hits the NRA in the pocketbook, where it counts, where we use our consumer dollars to hold companies accountable for selling assault rifles, or giving discounts, or taking money. So I just want you all to know that I'm ready. I'm ready to listen, I'm ready to learn, I'm ready to give you everything that I have ever learned that is useful, including all the mistakes I've made, um, in organizing so that we build a real meaningful movement. No more shootings in schools. No more shootings in places of worship. No more shootings on our streets. No more mass shootings. No more shootings. Thank you, Congresswoman. We appreciate hearing from you, and as students who have worked so hard with pouring our, house, our hearts out for this work, we have a lot to say. Um, so at this point, I want to invite our youth panelists to share a little bit about their work. Hello, my name is Rhiannon Rasaretnam, and I'm a senior from Tahoma High School. Um, I think just about three, four weeks ago, Amelia and I joined together to um, start a Facebook page and Instagram about March for Our Lives happening in Seattle. And we did this because this was something that we felt passionate about. Um, and when we saw that there hadn't been a movement started here in Washington yet, we took it upon ourselves to organize this. And so we want to make sure that this is, again, amplifying the voices of the youth, especially those in marginalized communities who have never had the international or national attention um, for all their years of working uh, against gun violence. And so, again, we want to make sure that if this is an inclusive movement and that we're amplifying voices that have not been heard um, for a long time. It, it happened in Marysville, and it almost happened in Muckleton and Edmonds. And it happened last weekend at, um, in West Seattle. One of our own Roosevelt students was shot. So. Yes, so it can happen in our high school, and we should be aware of that. And this is why we need comprehensive gun legislation, and that is why um, myself and Anna and Lena decided to get that walkout started. one of us was so, I mean, obviously we're devastated by it, but we are so numb to the idea of shootings, and that, and Parkland started something in me, and why am I feeling this way? Why, why am I not doing something? So this was, um, this was definitely the breaking point for me to uh, create a movement for something, and uh, I think it was for a lot of us, and uh, it's not, it, we can't be numb anymore. We have to keep continuing to create action. To you is why are you involved with this issue? Okay. Um, in the coming days after the Parkland shooting, um, there was a very specific conversation that I had with my mom. Um, I'll try not to tear up. Um, but so at home, I have four younger sisters, um, one of whom, named Charlotte, is um, she's 10 years old and she's autistic. Um, and she is autistic, she does not react to stressors in the same way that an everyday child would. When she gets stressed, she gets loud, and she can't control that. And so, basically, we talked about that if there were to be, I'm sorry, a school shooting um, at her school, she would not be able to hide. And she would, she would probably, be one of 
those kids who would be shot. Um, and so I realized that I needed to do this, not just for myself, um, to know that I did everything I could for Charlotte, but for kids like Charlotte, and just for Charlotte herself. We wanted to move to Scout, who, as we have all mentioned, um, has, was one of the organizers of a larger rally. So, me and uh, Gabe and Zach were having this conversation this morning about uh, the minutes of silence. And um, obviously, having moments of silence for the people who we've lost is incredibly important. But it's so much more important to be loud. Thank you. Um, it's so much more important to be loud. And what is reoccurring in me and losing people at the cafe racer shooting, for me personally, how much, what would they rather have? Would they rather have me sit outside in silence for 17 minutes? Or would they rather go, have me go out in the street and scream as loud as I can and shed tears and be so having those moments of silence to reflect is incredibly important, and I'm not disregarding that at all. But it's so much more important to respect those by getting angry and telling everyone what you want. Yes. Yeah. You hear these arguments saying, they're just kids. Why should we listen to kids? So, Catalia, our question for you is, why should we listen to the youth? I think the youth, we're the ones putting our lives at risk each day, going to school in the environment we have right now. I think that schools are targets and we go to school every day wondering, am I gonna make it home? You know, are my friends gonna make it home? Is my brother gonna make it home from school each day? And I don't think that is an okay place for students to live. And so I think we have to listen to the students because we are the ones who are being the most affected by this. And we are the next generation of voters. We are. There are four million youth who are going to be new voters in the elections in November. And so I think even though people will try to tell you that you are too young to make a difference or you're too young to understand, it's important to recognize that we do have political power and we do have the power to make our voices heard and see change. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> There's no way that you owning an assault weapon or being allowed to modify your weapons to act like assault weapons um, should ever conflict with our, our right and our, um, yeah, our right to go to school and to be able to solely focus on our education and not have to worry about doing active shooter drills, lockdowns, when we, and when we hear fire, uh, fire alarms, we're thinking that we want to stay in our classrooms because again at Parkland, they use the fire alarm to draw students out into the hallways. Going back to the Second Amendment, that was put into place when rifles sh were much less powerful than they are today. And we need to recognize that the Constitution is a living, breathing document. It can be amended. We can make changes to it. And so we need to make sure that our Constitution adapts to the society that we are living in today and that we're not stuck in the past and trying to use the Second Amendment to justify the self-government. <laughs> in a time where it's 
incredibly easy to text your representatives exactly what you want. Yeah. Um, so grab out your phone, email if you do that, do whatever you want and text and call and write messages to whoever you need to get in touch with and they will listen. And also, registering to vote, that is a big thing. 17. We just got 70 people at Ingram registered three weeks ago, and we have 70 voters this coming election. But also, there's another step in the registering to vote, is actually voting when you turn 18. Yes. Alright, so thank you everyone for sharing. Um, let's get into this conversation more by opening it up to some questions. So, panelists, would you like to start with some questions that you would like to ask the Congress? Um, okay, so my question is, um, what are you as an elected official right now currently doing specifically on uh, this gun control debate? And what will you continue to do? Thank you. First of all, um, thank you all. That was incredible. Um, I have signed on to every, I've co-sponsored every piece of legislation that's there. But we're in, a, we're in a moment where it's not just about co-sponsoring the legislation, it's how do we help to build the movement because we're not getting those pieces of legislation brought to the floor. So we have been working with the students in Parkland, with all of you all, but also within our own caucus to push to see how we can force Republicans to bring legislation to the floor. And I just want to say I'm a, I'm a Democrat, I'm a proud Democrat, but it, we also have not passed, when Democrats have been in the control, we haven't always passed legislation around gun reform. And so this is about holding both sides accountable. And ultimately, when we take the House back in November, which I really hope we do, we are starting the work to say, here are our priorities. And I'm the first vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, as I shared with you all before. And so we're organizing within the Progressive Caucus to make sure that we expand our numbers within the Democratic Party and that we put this at the top of our agenda. So everything, that all the pieces of legislation that you've talked about, I've introduced, I've co-sponsored, but we're not getting them to the floor. That is the problem right now. And so. Um, we're also trying to push the idea of not taking corporate PAC money, not taking NRA money. And so, I just spoke to a group of candidates who are running for political office to make this case that it is not only the right thing to do, it's good for your campaigns. It helps your campaigns to not take corporate PAC money. But these aren't like deeper seated issues that are a part of why these pieces of legislation aren't pushing forward. And then. Um, I'm really excited about just helping you all with your organizing in any way, shape, or form so that you can continue to lead in the way that you have been doing. And an activist on the outside pushing for things when they weren't popular. The Democratic Party wasn't in support of comprehensive immigration reform back in 2003. Um, that was not on the party platform. We had to get it onto the party platform. Um, I was the only woman of color in the state senate, and, uh, and Senator Saldana was the only woman of color until Manka Dingra joined her. Um, and so there are so many pieces to what we have to do to get real representation. And some of it is the fault of voters who don't vote. I'm just going to say it. Because what happens is everything gets tailored to this smaller and smaller group of voting people. 
And that doesn't represent everybody. And there are good reasons why people don't vote, because they haven't been represented, because they don't have people that inspire them, because they don't have people that speak out for them, which is why at every level we need to increase the diversity of representation in elected office so that we don't have these challenges. Because when you have people from communities that are truly deeply affected by the issues we're talking about, or when you have people from communities that have suffered from gun violence, they are going to be champions for that issue when they go to the legislature. Diversity isn't important just because the pictures look better. It's important because people bring different experiences and stories to the table, and we are fighting to make sure our voices are heard. I mean, there's a parallel structure of institutionalized, institutionalized racism in everybody, including in Congress. And so the more that we can do to tear those down at every level and work with each other to break down those silos, the better. So real gun control legislation, which includes some of the things we've talked about, but probably includes a lot more that we haven't talked about, is only going to be possible when we get more folks like you all, like other people that are running across the country who have said, this is critical to me and I'm not going to use my power just for power, I'm going to use it for justice. Those are two different things. And so to me, it starts at the very bottom with um, making sure people understand why they need to vote even if they're disgusted, why they need to run even if they're disgusted with the political system, and why they have to be, as you said, one of you two, I can't remember who said this, but to be out in the streets, not just having the moments of silence, which are really important, but if they stop there, then they don't mean anything. We have to turn anger into determination to actually fight for what we believe in. Okay. So before anyone asks any more questions, um, next we have to talk, yeah. Okay, so again, kind of a follow-up to what we've been talking about. You mentioned that there are struggles on both sides of the aisle to pass comprehensive gun legislation. So even if we have a Democratic House after the midterm elections, what sort of, we recognize that we might not be able to pass everything we want. So what sort of legislation surrounding guns and gun control do you believe will pass in Congress? Yeah. I think there's two that we've already signed discharge petitions for. So a discharge petition is when you can't, when because the majority controls what legislation comes to the floor. So a discharge petition, essentially, if you can get a majority of the body, which is 218 people, to sign a discharge petition, it allows a piece of legislation to come to the floor without the majority leader calling for it to come to the floor. Does that make sense? So it's a way to force a piece of legislation to come to the floor. So we've already signed discharge petitions, the entire caucus, on banning assault rifles, and on background checks including closing gun loopholes. So those two pieces of legislation, for sure, when we take back the House, should be at the top of the list, and I think will be. Um, and I believe that uh, so is uh, a piece of legislation around high-capacity magazines. So those three, I think, are, um, we have enough support in the Democratic Caucus. And by the way, when we take back the House in November, I think we'll have a surge of progressive candidates winning, which will also help us. Um, and then I think we need to work on, I also think we can um, get rid of the Dickey Amendment, which yes. those of you, because 
we, the CDC, should be able to do research into this issue as a public health crisis. That helped us to get seatbelts when we were, you know, seeing all the gun deaths. I mean, all the deaths from <laughs> car violence. Um, and it also helped us around smoking when we were trying to legislate smoking is to research it as a public health crisis. And that is what this is. So if we can get rid of that Dickey Amendment, which most of you know, it didn't actually say the CDC can't do research, but what it did is it had this chilling effect where it reduced um, funding for gun, uh, for public health research into gun violence by almost the exact same amount as they were doing. And so it was sent an unconscious message or conscious message to people saying you can't use the CDC to advocate um, against guns. And so that meant that research that says that guns are responsible for a disproportionate number of deaths in this country would be seen as advocacy. So we, I think we could do that as well. And then the question is, what's the bigger pieces, you know, what are the bigger pieces of legislation that we might want to have, you know, that we might want to work towards? And I think if you look at Australia, um, you know, they banned a whole set of weapons, not just assault rifles, um, that they saw, and they put limits on, on, on how guns could be used and where they could be used. And we have to be careful about this because we do have the Second Amendment and we do have to make sure that we're balancing everything that that includes. But um, as you said so beautifully, that was written a long time ago. And we didn't have the kinds of guns that we have. So, but those are some that I think we'll be able to move right away. From someone else in the audience, how can Congress decrease heavy arms militarization of police um, nationwide, which sets model of society relying on escalating violence. So this is probably one for Representative Drive. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is a huge... Hello. Oh, oh. Um, so this is a, a huge issue just in terms of militarization of our country in a much bigger way. And a lot of the money that we put, and, and this may sound like it's I think this is what the question is getting at, and it's obviously not directly about gun reform, but we put $600 billion into defense, and, excuse me, 600, we, we increased the defense budget by 600 billion this year, that's what I meant to say. And so we have to, we have to make sure that we are looking at militarization of our country in general. And the Pentagon is the only federal agency that is not audited. Just imagine that. So as we put trillions of dollars into military and weaponization, both along the border and in our interior, into law enforcement, what happens is like these weapons then get distributed once they're not in use. They can be bought by local police departments around the country. And so when I was in the state senate, I actually was looking at a piece of legislation, maybe Senator Saldana wants to pick it up, around not allowing, that was not lobbying you, I don't think, but not allowing for these buybacks of military weapons, because these are weapons that are used in wars that then get passed down to local police departments and county departments without any training, and they can buy them for pennies on the dollar. So it's a huge issue. But so is legislation like the de-escalate Washington legislation, which just got passed in this year's legislature. That was a grassroots effort driven by the parents of multi-ethnic 
families who had, who had had kids shot, people shot in their families, they came together to put a ballot initiative on the ballot to say that in order to hold local law enforcement accountable for shootings, that you had to prove malice. That was a very unusual thing in our state constitution that doesn't exist in other places and made it impossible to hold law enforcement accountable, but also then provided training and resources to law enforcement about how to de-escalate in these crisis situations. So I think we've got a lot of work to do, first of all, to reduce the amount of money that we put into Mil into the uh, military budget. We just, we need to really think about how we're militarizing everything in our society and country and world. Second, how we actually provide resources to law enforcement so they have other tools other than guns. And third, that we help organize to, to hold law enforcement accountable for things that they do do when they kill folks and, you know, and there's injustice there. So I think all of those things are important. What can we do as organizations to support your efforts? Um, first off, thank you um, for being here, all of the organizations. Um, at this point, being uh, eight days away from the march, seven I guess, um, time is weird. Um, I think our main focus now is fundraising. Um, pulling, off, um, pulling off a march of this size comes with a large cost. Um, ensuring that we have those safety measures in place on the day of the march is a big cost. We do have a GoFundMe. If you just search for March for Our Lives Seattle, we still need about $40,000 more to pull this march off. So we'd really appreciate it if you could just contribute five, ten dollars whatever you can do. That would really help. Really, I think we heard all the closing remarks we needed from the panelists. You all were amazing. Um, I just want to say that this is a long fight. Um, I told the students when we met earlier that I had I've just come back from a civil rights pilgrimage with um, John Lewis to Selma and Montgomery and Birmingham and Memphis and what struck me was first of all the generosity of the people who had been discriminated against who had been beaten who had been bloodied during the 60s in the fight for our civil rights and how they were able to still operate with so much love and forgiveness in accepting um, those who had wronged them and the changes that had occurred. Second, how people were able to change themselves. I mean, the, the daughter of the segregationist Alabama governor who spoke there, who essentially disowned her father and spoke out against her father and then was disowned by her own family, her brothers and sisters, for doing that. That is the power of human transformation. And so I think if we can just remember as we're doing this work that transformation is not only possible, it is um, probable if we engage with our full souls and our full hearts. And I'm just so inspired by everything that you've done. and. Um, I know I'm going to do an email to raise money for you all on my campaign side account. So if you're on my campaign side account, make sure you give. Um, and we're also just going to help with any organizing that we can do because this is not a moment. It is the beginning of a movement. But to make sure that it's a movement, we need to support these folks to continue to engage with all of the groups. And thank you for asking the question about how the existing groups support new leadership. 
Um, and I really believe we can win. Don't you believe we can win? Yeah.